In 2020, with the outbreak of the COVID-19 pandemic, we all learned firsthand just how important public health organizations are. They're supposed to identify diseases, learn how they spread, and teach the public how to protect themselves. They're supposed to keep us safe. But what happens when they don't? What if a country's health system is more focused on lining officials' pockets and upholding their reputations, even when people are dying? Would you be able to speak up if you knew that pushing back could ruin your life? Welcome to Whistleblowers, a Spotify original from Parcast. In this series, we explore the biggest lies in history through the eyes of the whistleblowers who risked everything to expose them. From the women who revealed the truth about America's favorite yoga cult, to the FBI agent who tried to stop 9-11 and was ignored. In this episode, we tell the story of Xu Ping Wang, the whistleblower who lost her career, her family, and her home in her quest to stop one of the deadliest health crises in history. This is a story about greed, poverty, and one doctor's determination to save lives, no matter the cost. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode is brought to you by The Weather Channel. The key to solving any mystery? Smart decisions based on the facts. In the case of the weather's effect on your well-being, turn to the Weather Channel app. It clues you in on how weather shapes your mood, health, and productivity with insights built on reliable forecast data to help you thrive. Because mystery belongs in true crime, not weather. Be a force of nature with the Weather Channel app. Chang Sun needed money. Born and raised in a small farming village in China's central Henan province, The 20-something newlywed was used to being poor. Life had always been a struggle in this part of the country. But now, things were getting worse. It was the early 1990s, and as China transitioned to its own form of capitalism, just surviving was becoming difficult. Which is why Chang was thrilled when he started to hear about a new, easy way to make money. One that would still leave people with plenty of time to work the farms. And it was all organized by the government. The Chinese Ministry of Health and the Henan Health Department were offering to buy your blood from you. For 800 milliliters of blood and less than half an hour of your time, you'd get paid 45 yuan, which at the time would have fed a family for a week. 
The scheme had been created in order to help provinces like Henan. With all of China's new growth, its cities were attracting pharmaceutical and biotech companies. These companies needed blood plasma in order to do research and create products. As a poor agricultural province, Henan didn't have a way to attract all this new economic growth. But its officials realized the region could still get a cut of the pie using its one reliable resource, its population. The officials quickly came up with the idea of selling blood plasma to these wealthy companies. Not only would it provide a much-needed source of income to people like Chang, but it would bring a good chunk of cash to the provincial government as well. If the officials skimmed some off for themselves, well, that was just the price of doing business. Before long, Chang and his family knew lots of people who were selling their blood. It seemed easy enough. You'd donate 800 milliliters, and the broker would pay you on the spot. Since it wasn't safe for people to lose that much blood very often, you had to wait a month or two before your next sale. But soon, demand from both buyers and sellers grew. The brokers realized they had to figure out a way to let people donate blood more often. The key was that the plasma, not the blood itself, was the most important part. So once they had extracted the plasma from a blood donation, they could transfuse the remaining plasmaless blood into someone else who had just donated. Thanks to this transfusion, Chang could donate up to four times a day and walk out of the clinic carrying more money than he usually earned in a week. It took no time and no skill at all. Even his aging parents could do it. He was sure this was his family's ticket out of poverty. Over the next few years, Chang, his wife, his parents, his cousins, and his aunts and uncles all sold their blood regularly. It paid for weddings, appliances, a big new house. For the first time in their lives, people in his village weren't constantly worried about money. Finally, the fortunes of their impoverished region were shifting. But then, in early 2000, Chang's wife got sick. And then his father got sick, too. And their neighbors. Suddenly, it seemed like everyone in the village was ill, and their doctors couldn't work out why. Before long, people started dying. The fields that used to be worked by young men were now being used to bury them. Chang didn't understand what was happening, but he knew that something was very, very wrong. In the city of Zhoko, elsewhere in Henan province, someone else had also noticed. In 1991, 32-year-old Dr. Xuping Wang, or Wang Xuping in the Chinese convention, was working for the Zhoko district's Epidemic Prevention Center. With her background in studying bloodborne diseases, she'd been assigned to work in a plasma collection clinic. Xuping was just supposed to help with blood collection managing the extraction of the plasma, and storing and distributing the materials to buyers. But with her expertise in blood diseases, it didn't take long for her to notice a number of irregularities, both with the donors and the collection process. She recognized familiar health issues in the blood donors, 
Health issues that look disturbingly like hepatitis C, a version of the virus that leads to liver cirrhosis and cancer if left untreated. Normally, donations should be screened for blood-borne diseases, but Shuping quickly saw that the station was only testing for hepatitis B and not C. As a scientist, Shuping wanted to make sure she was absolutely correct before she went to her bosses. Without making a fuss, she quietly tested 64 current donor samples for hepatitis C. To her horror, 34% of them came back positive for the virus. Her station was distributing and selling blood contaminated with hepatitis C. If this blood and plasma were being used, they were unwittingly spreading a deadly disease. Terrified of the implications, Xuping wanted to believe that the contaminated blood was getting filtered out somewhere else in the process. But when she looked into the rest of the station's procedures, she discovered that it was even worse than she'd feared. Remember how collection stations were giving donors blood transfusions in order to allow them to sell more and more often? Well, Xuping realized that her station was in fact mixing all the plasmaless blood together to make things easier for themselves, which meant that the blood with hepatitis C was contaminating all the other blood and being injected back into donors. In other words, the Ministry of Health was essentially giving Henan's poorest people hepatitis C. They were creating an epidemic, and no one but Xuping seemed to realize. Coming up, Shuping's warnings are ignored. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In late spring 1992, 32-year-old Dr. Xuping Wang discovered that the blood collection center she worked at was the source of a hepatitis C epidemic. Once she had proof, Xuping immediately went to the head of the collection station. If they didn't start screening donors for hepatitis C and stop cross-contaminating the collected blood, things were only going to get worse. But her boss didn't care. He claimed it would be too expensive for them to improve the screening process. The whole point of the blood-selling scheme was to bring money into Henan province. Adding these steps would cost a lot and cut into the supply of blood they could sell. In other words, this man intended to just let the epidemic grow, allowing hundreds of thousands of people to die. Xuping was no stranger to tragedy. She'd grown up in the midst of Chairman Mao's revolution, a violent political movement that aimed to purge the country of old-fashioned, traditional values and counter-revolutionary intellectuals. Hundreds of thousands of people had died, perhaps even millions. And because her father had been a soldier of the opposition 20 years before, they'd been targeted, too. 
When she was just eight years old, her parents were marched through the streets in front of her. They were humiliated, spat at, and she was ordered to denounce them. But she just stared back and kept her mouth shut. For this, she was kicked out of school and told she could only return if she publicly condemned her parents. Shuping refused to betray her family, but she couldn't bear the thought of missing school. She realized that if she was careful, she could listen to the teacher from outside her classroom's open window. And that's what she did, every single day. In these conditions, getting an education wasn't easy. But Xuping was determined. And by the time she was in her mid-twenties, she had passed her medical exams, married a fellow doctor who worked at the Ministry of Health, and had a beautiful baby daughter. She thought she had a quiet, stable life ahead of her after the turmoil of her childhood. But now, here she was. She decided that if her boss wasn't going to do anything to stop the epidemic, she'd have to go over his head to someone who would. It's useful here to know a bit about the structure of government in China, which is fairly similar to that of the United States. Put simply... There's the city level, the state level, and the national level. The City Health Bureau ran Shuping's small collection station. Then the state ran the Department of Health above that. And then at the national level was the Ministry of Health in Beijing. Rather than going to the smaller city-level health bureau, Shuping decided to go straight to the big guns. She thought it was likely that the hepatitis C epidemic was all over Henan by now. So she went to the state-level provincial Department of Health and reported both the unsafe practices and epidemic. Soon, a doctor from the Department of Health came to inspect the station. When she saw that what Shuping had reported was true, she wasn't surprised. This doctor informed Shuping and her colleagues that, since Shuping's report, she'd inspected a number of other clinics in the region. She had discovered the same unsanitary practices at all of them. This wasn't a one-off problem. Henan's collection stations were driving a massive hepatitis C epidemic throughout the province. In July 1993, the Henan Province Department of Health finally introduced a new set of standards for blood and plasma collection, including hepatitis C screening. But instead of being rewarded for her dedication, Shuping's boss fired her in retaliation. Not only had she gotten the collection station in trouble, but the new, safer procedures had also raised expenses and reduced the amount of blood they could buy. Locked out of her collection center, with no way to make sure her boss was following the new guidelines, Shuping had little hope that the epidemic would be stopped. She'd have to find another way to protect her community. Strong-willed as ever, Shuping soon found a solution. With the help of a few friends, she secured a job at the Joko Health Bureau's Office of Medical Affairs. There, she used her newfound expertise to make sure the stations were sticking to the new rules. After all, she knew the regulations better than anyone. Shuping set to work inspecting the district's 17 plasma collection centers, and what she and her colleagues found was horrifying. Every single one was still mixing blood, 
and skipping hepatitis C screenings. Some weren't even properly sanitizing their needles and equipment. The inspectors forced them to implement the new procedures, but there were still private, unregulated collection stations that would keep spreading the virus. Despite everything Shuping had done, hardly anything had changed. Once again, she realized she'd have to take things into her own hands. Shuping started collecting data and testing blood all on her own. She soon discovered that up to 84% of people in the district might be carrying hepatitis C in their blood and passing it on to their families. This was even worse than she'd imagined. Most people exposed to hepatitis C develop the disease chronically, which can be fatal. For Hanan's poor rural communities, where healthcare was limited and most doctors weren't looking for hepatitis C, this would be devastating. Shuping took her numbers to the district health commissioner. Unable to ignore them, he finally started to try to contain the epidemic. Her determination had paid off, but a far greater threat was already looming, one that would make her struggle against hepatitis seem easy. By late 1993, Shuping was finally wrapping up her research on the hepatitis C epidemic. But she'd only been in her new job for a couple of months when a new paper came out. It sounded the alarm about high HIV infection rates among drug users in Yunnan province, southwestern China. Up to this point, China had considered HIV and AIDS to be Western diseases. The Chinese government insisted that HIV did not exist in China, which made it especially attractive to international biotech and pharmaceutical companies. This paper was suggesting that this was no longer true. Xuping knew that if HIV was spreading in Yunnan province, it was only a matter of time before it got to Henan province. In order to prevent an AIDS epidemic from breaking out, they needed to start screening people for it now. Xuping begged the Zhoko Health Bureau to give her permission to start testing for HIV in blood collection stations and hospitals throughout the district. The officials agreed, but there was a catch. They wouldn't give her any funding because they claimed there was no way HIV existed in China. With no other options, Xuping used her savings to buy the necessary equipment and started implementing HIV testing. After over a year of testing, in March 1995, she found her first case. A man from Yunnan province had sold his blood to several stations in Zhoko before it was discovered that he'd previously tested positive for HIV in Yunnan. When Xuping tested him, she found the same thing. Her stomach sank. The man's HIV-positive blood had already been spread around Henan province in the last few weeks. An outbreak could have already started underneath their noses. Shuping went straight to the Henan Department of Health with her findings. They needed to start testing all blood donors for HIV, and they needed to test the blood they already had. Once again, the officials just shrugged. The province simply didn't have the money to implement that kind of mass testing. And though they didn't say it, Going to the central government in Beijing would mean admitting that HIV had come to China. Not only that, but Henan would risk losing its lucrative blood-selling contracts. 
Drawing on her savings once again, Shuping bought three HIV testing kits from different manufacturers. Then she collected 409 random donor blood samples from three different parts of Joko District. Using the kits, she tested each sample three times, just to make sure her results were accurate. Shuping found that 13% of the samples were HIV positive. As she'd feared, the HIV epidemic had already started. Since the state-level officials clearly didn't want to listen to her, she took her results to the head of the city-level Joko Bureau of Health. He couldn't ignore cold, hard numbers. Grateful for her work, he promised to pass the report up the chain so that they could mobilize government resources to stop the pandemic in its tracks. For two weeks, Shuping waited to hear what the health officials would do. When she heard nothing, she went back to the bureau chief. This time, his entire demeanor had changed. He was nervous and angry with her for coming back. When Shuping asked what he and the provincial officials had decided to do about the HIV epidemic, he suggested that perhaps her test results were incorrect. Maybe there wasn't really an epidemic. They didn't want to cause trouble and make the province look bad for no reason. Frustrated, Shuping insisted that her results were accurate. To prove it, she decided to check them at the Institute of Virology at the Chinese Academy of Preventative Medicine, which is the Chinese equivalent of the CDC. Those results would be undeniable. When she arrived in Beijing, though, she discovered that the institute was going to charge her for each test. Every sample would cost 700 yuan. She'd brought 55 tests with her, to do them all would cost seven times the average person's annual salary. Having spent all her savings on testing equipment, Shuping didn't have that kind of money. As she headed out, trying to come up with another plan, Shuping heard someone calling her name. Startled, she looked up and saw Dr. Zheng Yi, the president of the entire Chinese Academy of Preventative Medicine, whom she knew from her medical studies. Shuping immediately confessed everything about the HIV epidemic and how she'd come all the way to the capital to prove to the Henan health officials that it was real. Horrified, Dr. Zheng insisted that she stay. He would personally oversee the testing of the samples at no cost. The next day, the results came back. Shuping's tests were accurate. Henan's HIV epidemic was real. Dr. Zheng thanked Shuping for her work and reported the outbreak to the National Chinese Ministry of Health. Just a few hours later, though, the director of the Zhoukou Health Bureau called Shuping at her hotel and laid into her. He accused her of having caused an earthquake for the district. Shuping knew that angry officials could cause trouble for her, but as long as the government in Beijing was listening to her and acting to prevent the spread of HIV, she was sure she didn't have anything to worry about. She was about to discover just how wrong she was. Coming up, Shuping pays a price for speaking out. Now, back to the story. In the spring of 1995, Dr. Xu Ping Wang had finally succeeded in getting high-level Chinese health officials to listen to her concerns about an emerging HIV epidemic in Henan province. 
When she returned home to Zhoukou from Beijing, a senior official in Henan's health department called to compliment and thank her. The next day, the Zhoukou Health Bureau invited her to brief officials on her findings. They were coming to town especially to review the situation. Finally, the HIV epidemic was being taken seriously. The moment Xuping arrived for the briefing, though, one of the directors of the Zhoukou Bureau angrily told her to leave. The next day, one of his colleagues demanded that she remove from her report any mention that she'd brought the evidence of HIV spread to them before going to Beijing. Xuping immediately realized what was happening. If she presented her complete version of events to the state-level bureau, these city-level officials would look bad at their jobs. In the Chinese Communist Party, that could mean they'd be fired and lose their livelihoods entirely. They hadn't wanted to spend the money to look out for public health before, but now that their superiors knew they'd cut corners, they needed the truth to be covered up. Even worse, when Xuping was finally allowed to meet with the state-level health officials, they only wanted to talk about how she figured out that HIV was an issue in Henan. They started to suggest that perhaps she'd been mistaken. They claimed she was the only doctor in the area to locate HIV-positive patients. That seemed a bit suspect to them. Surely someone else would have figured this out too, if it were real. In other words, in order to pretend they had made no mistakes and protect their careers, these officials wanted to stop HIV testing and let the virus run rampant through the unwitting population. Despite all of Xuping's hard work and the support of the Chinese Academy of Preventative Medicine, nothing was going to change. Xuping gave up on the officials. She was going to keep testing no matter what. She had to try to help people even if no one else would. And then, one evening, she was working alone at her testing center. She heard a noise outside and looked up. A moment later, she heard the front door open. Footsteps echoed through the front room. Shooping went to see who it was. A man was standing there, holding a wooden baton. Shuping recognized him as a retired Joko health official. Before she could ask him what he was doing, the man looked her dead in the eyes and started smashing her testing equipment. For the first time, Shuping panicked. This was equipment she'd paid for with her own savings. She couldn't afford to replace it. She begged him to stop. She threw herself in front of the equipment, but he didn't stop. Instead, he turned the baton on her. People heard her screams from the street and ran in to pull the vandal off her. When the police arrived to arrest him, the man struggled against them, shouting that he was there because of local leaders who wanted her to close the center. As they took him away, Shuping looked at her destroyed equipment and started to cry. She was sore, bruised, and tired of fighting. Several months later, in spring 1996, the Chinese government finally kitted out all of the country's blood collection stations with HIV testing equipment. As stressed as Xuping was, she couldn't help but celebrate. After nearly a year and a half, and who knows how many infections, the first steps had been taken to protect the people of Henan from the virus. But her troubles were far from over. 
That July, she attended a conference about AIDS prevention in Henan. There, several top officials gave speeches calling out the male whistleblower who had dared to go over their heads to report the HIV epidemic directly to Beijing, embarrassing the province and its officials. They made it clear that if anyone else did the same, they would suffer the consequences. Shuping was heartened when representatives from other districts spoke out in support of the whistleblower. They told the officials that their HIV infection rates were as high or higher than the Joko ones. They insisted that HIV was a huge problem across the province, and they wanted to be taken seriously. Encouraged, Shuping stood up. She faced the director of Zhoukou's Epidemic Prevention Center, Zhang Maozai, and informed him that she was the very man he was complaining about, only she was a woman. She told him she had followed the proper procedure and had only gone to Beijing to verify her results. Zhang looked like he might punch her, his face twisting in anger. He couldn't believe that this unimportant woman would dare contradict him in front of all these people— His supporters began to shout at her, chasing her from the room. But Zhang wasn't done with Xuping yet. Several months later, in November 1996, he showed up at her testing center, flanked by a number of other public health officials. He informed her that her testing equipment was no longer considered safe and that she and her team would have to stop their work. After all, he said condescendingly, He wouldn't want all these women to get infected with HIV. Shuping had had enough. For all these years, she had put up with these self-serving officials trying to stop her from helping people. Something in her snapped. She whirled on Zhang and his colleagues and demanded to know why they didn't care about the tens of thousands of people who were already infected with and dying from AIDS. She told the officials exactly what she thought of them, letting her disgust and hatred out. She accused Zhang of having perpetrated a crime on generations of Chinese. That night, the district health bureau informed Shuping that her testing center was officially being closed. Shuping didn't care. The health bureau could say whatever they wanted. She and her team would keep helping people. Then the harassment started. Her phone rang off the hook with anonymous threats to her and her family's safety. One night, the testing center's power was cut, ruining all the blood samples. Her husband was ostracized and demoted at work. Finally, Shuping was officially fired. The head of the health bureau told her, go home to take care of your husband. Her work on HIV prevention and testing was over. For the next couple years, Shuping watched from the sidelines as the AIDS epidemic continued to grow in Henan's poorest rural communities. After all this time, state-level officials still didn't want to address the problem. Shuping was miserable. She was unemployed. Her marriage had fallen apart. Years of dedication were virtually flushed down the drain. It wasn't until 2001 when she managed to get a work visa to the U.S. at the age of 40, that Shuping regained her natural optimism. She threw herself into her new life, learning a new language and new medical technologies. She adopted the English name of Sunshine, 
a reflection of her warm and friendly disposition. Her colleagues liked and admired her, and she soon became a highly respected medical researcher. She quickly made new friends, built a new support network, and fell in love with a kind and supportive man who would become her second husband. Despite it all, Shuping still wished she could do more to help the Chinese people. The AIDS epidemic in rural provinces like Henan was still raging and continued well into the 2000s. Even with increased testing, information and treatments were limited, especially for the poor. As Shuping had feared, entire villages were essentially left to die, with sick people told that there was no point in even treating them. As much as Shuping wanted to go home, every time she published an article or did an interview about HIV in China, the Chinese government sprang into action. Her family and friends who still lived there would be harassed by officials who threatened both them and her if she didn't stay quiet. Shuping would never let the government silence her, but she worried about her family. Then, in 2019, the daughter of a friend of Shuping's wrote a play based on her experience and the health crises she exposed. When it was announced that the play would premiere in London that September, the harassment started up again. This time, though, the world was watching. Shuping told the international press that she refused to be intimidated. She was merely speaking the truth. The play was a huge success. Shuping attended as a guest and received a standing ovation after the performance. Though she didn't think she had done anything special, she had simply done the right thing. Her friends and family were happy to see her finally getting the appreciation she deserved. A week later, back home in Utah, Shuping returned to her normal life. She and her husband loved hiking in the beautiful mountains near their home. That weekend, they went with a group of friends, as they often did. Tragically, on that hiking trip, 59-year-old Shuping died of a heart attack. No doubt the extreme stress that colored so many of Shuping's first 40 years contributed to her early death. Though she was never able to return home to China, she did live long enough to see the development of medicines to treat HIV and AIDS. To this day, we don't know how many people were infected and died during China's AIDS epidemic. Both local and national officials did their best to keep recorded numbers low in order to make themselves look better. As they avoided testing, the virus continued to spread. In a system built on greed, fear, and self-interest, Shuping's courage was an anomaly, and it allowed her to save countless lives. Thank you for listening. You can find all episodes of Whistleblowers and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. We'll be back next week with a new episode about the world's biggest lies and the people who expose them. For more information on Shuping Wang, among the many sources we used, we found her account, How I Discovered the HIV Epidemic, on ChinaChange.org, extremely helpful to our research. Whistleblowers is a Spotify original for ParCast, Produced in partnership with Stable. Executive produced by Drew Cole, Max Cutler, Becky Jacobs, and David McGuire. Developed for podcast by Julian Boireau. Written by Kate Thorman. Produced by Alice Homewood. 
mixed, mastered, and sound designed by Rowan Bishop for Stable, and hosted by me, Pat Rodriguez.